Blog Talk Radio. I hate you both. I've hated you ever since I can remember. I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. <gasps> October 19th, week three of Pink Nausea, and we are once again live on the Stupid Cancer Show, the voice of young adults with cancer. We are your friendly neighborhood weekly social webcast, finally giving a voice to nearly five million young adults affected by cancer. Got cancer under 40? Suck, huh? Well, get busy living, because the Stupid Cancer Show is on the air. Welcome to tonight's broadcast. We are here to change the world one chemo infusion at a time and share all of our collective crapness. This broadcast is a program of the I'm Too Young for This Cancer Foundation, one of the nation's leading grassroots advocates for the next generation of survivors and caregivers. It's all about us, folks, and we're bringing the cause of cancer under 40 to the national spotlight and sticking it to a system that's ignored us for way too long. The past three decades of cancer progress have failed the next generation, so there's no reason to think the next 30 years will be any different unless change happens now. Join us and be the change that needs hell, the change that must happen. We invented Google, Facebook, Twitter. We kept Sanjaya on American Idol all those weeks. We can do anything we want. This is Generation Cancer. It is our fight and our duty to give back to our own. We have the sheer numbers, the voting power, and the influence. Because remission is not an excuse for a cure. And survivorship is all that really matters. Last week's show, Pink Nausea Conspiracies with Survivor Spotlight Courtney Bugler from the Young Survival Coalition in Atlanta. Kasha Ho, Program Manager from our friends at the Breast Cancer Action Group, Think Before You Pink. And Dr. Deborah Davis, Ph.D., director of the Center for Environmental Oncology at the University of Pittsburgh Cancer Institute, and the author of The Secret History of the War on Cancer, tonight's show, Stand Up to Stupid Cancer. In our spotlight, Fred Bernal, young adult testicular cancer survivor and investigator and assistant professor at the National Institute of Health and an instructor in pediatrics at Dana-Farber. Diane Balma, young adult survivor of breast cancer and the executive director of Stand Up to Cancer. And Laura Schauber, ovarian cancer survivor, the CEO of Phenomics, the founder of the Clarity Foundation, and a scientific advisory member of Stand Up to Cancer. 
So hello, my friends, and welcome to yet another fun-filled and exciting Rock Through the Hay on tonight's Stupid Cancer Show. And a Stupid Cancer welcome to all of our first-time listeners here on the Blog Talk Radio Network, especially anyone listening who attended last night's Andrew McMahon concert in Washington, D.C., coming to you live from the Chemo Deck, our fabulous studio in downtown Manhattan. I'm your host, Matthew Zachary, age 13, coming up on 14 year young adult pediatric brain cancer survivor joining me live in the studio tonight as always our chief cancer anarchist jack buffard hello jack what's up matthew how you doing brother jack will be monitoring our live concurrent interactive chat room so if you have something to say let him have it and drill him with really simple questions to stump his small little brain live in our studio audience tonight the lovely and talented young adult musician survivor Rebecca Cherry. Hello, Rebecca. Hi, everyone. Rebecca gets a little applause here. Hello there. You're going to be hearing a lot about from Rebecca these days. Uh, what's your MySpace page? Uh, Rebecca Cherry Music. MySpace.com slash Rebecca Cherry Music, just as it sounds. Uh, she is a violinist, an extraordinarily accomplished musician and singer-composer. She was going to be featured on Volume 3 of the I2I Benefit CD, and it's a pleasure and she will be opening for me at my benefit concert on Staten Island on December 5th at musicforthecure.org. So thanks for joining us, Rebecca. Anything else to say? Uh, thanks for having me, Matthew. A pleasure. Shouldn't you be opening for her, though? I probably should be. At some I've point. heard her music. You should definitely be opening yeah, for her. I know. And uh, as always, it is my esteemed pleasure to introduce my official partner in crime here on the Stupid Cancer Show, hailing from the windy city of Chicago, fellow young adult survivor and author of the acclaimed book, Everything Changes, the Insider's Guide to Cancer in Your 20s and 30s, the truly lovely, talented, blogtastic, and spectacular Carol Rosenthal. Hello, Jack and Matthew. Hello, darling. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you doing? Good. Where have you been gallivanting this past week? Well, this morning I was gallivanting down memory lane in my blog in which I wrote all about how much I love to get stoned in high school. That's a long blog. <laughs> that is a very long blog. Yeah, it was kind of fun taking that little trip down memory lane and remembering, you know, I used to carve little bowls out of apples and carrots and get really stoned. Yeah, it was it was pot story day today for me. Okay. Yeah, and and it's an interesting conversation too about like on my blog about how many people are afraid of taking painkillers, like afraid of becoming addicted or afraid of like the loopiness and the side effects. And I don't think we talk enough about pain management. You know, it's important important conversation to have. I think. Okay, I'm I have no response to that. You have no response. Yeah, I, I, I can only just agree. Wow. Okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna be quiet now. Oh, it's true. Cricket, 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 cricket. <laughs> are, are you are you shocked by it's my? It's like one of his concerts. 
Yeah, exactly. Thank you very much. <laughs> the one thing I will say this week, though, is is I have been overwhelmed with pride as to the level of attention that the pinkwashing has gotten in this country. There have been articles from all of the major news networks, most of the major publications out there, Newsweek, Time, Newsday, CBS. They have all put together – the Boston Globe had the greatest one of all of them, if I had to compare them. Uh, finally, that consumer advocacy is, is, is trumping corporate greed and abuse of cause marketing, and I could not be happier. Carol, you were privy to the majority of those articles. Yeah, it's it's really interesting how, you know, the tide is kind of changing this year and it's just been the first year that major news outlets have begun to be vocal and questioning and what I really loved about the article in the Globe is that it wasn't just commenting but it was proactively taking companies to task on on what it is that they're doing um, and on their ethics around um, pink marketing and cause-related marketing. So that is just such a fantastic piece of journalism. If folks have not read it, um, go to the Boston Globe uh, website and just Google, you know, breast cancer awareness. It was called Sick of Pink. Sick of Pink? Sick of Pink, yeah. Yeah, it's just, it's such a fantastic article. And, you know, one point that people have raised in all of these articles is that I think the the marketers have the defense that at least their product is raising awareness. And my question continually is, what is awareness? Like, we know that breast cancer exists. Like, I'm not really sure that making people aware that breast cancer is a disease right. actually does much. I think awareness about facts or statistics or prevention is really great. So I, I think it'd be great if we started taking companies to task. If if awareness is their defense and what they're out there for, what are you making people aware of? You know, it'd be so easy to just print some little statistic or snippet of information um, on all of these little products so that people are actually being educated about something and learning something. You know, even if, if the money is not eventually making it to some great place, at least people are becoming aware of something other than the fact that cancer makes its way into some women's boobs. Because yeah. that's not, <laughs> you know, that, that in and of itself is not, you know, a pressing, you know, news release. You know what, uh, the biggest piece of feedback that I got talking to, like, female cancer survivors this whole month is the, all the women who had non-breast cancer cancers, and people just throw pink stuff their way, or they just automatically assume that they've had breast cancer. And Everybody it thinks them crazy. that I have, have breast cancer. Everyone says, oh, yeah, oh you're, you know, you wrote a book about cancer, you must have some cancer in your tits. Well, I don't. It's in my throat, actually. Yeah. It's, it's my neck. It's not breast cancer, but... I don't know. I mean, it's, it is, you know, I don't think that um, cause marketing is just going to pack up its bags and, and go on its merry way. And so my question is, all right, so if we have this whole industry that we've set up, how can we use it for good? You know, how can we use it to educate, benefit patients, and have money going to really useful research that's strategically planned and, you know, not just trying to get people to buy a vacuum cleaner because it's pink? My favorite part of the article, though, really was when they took the uh, corporations to task about them not registering to be legal cause marketing agents for Komen, and that they – I spoke to the, the, the woman who wrote it. She actually wrote me back. I, we, we're corresponding now. That, uh, that Komen actually responded to her inquiry and contributed to the article. 
and that they did their diplomacy and said, we're going to look into this, and we're really sorry that we didn't know these were the rules. But it was just so it – was, it was cathartically transparent, at least for me, for people to just see through the cracks and read between the lines on how deceptive and, and, and scurrilous this can really be. And, 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 and just as a message to all the people that hate me and unfriended me on Facebook because I'm telling the truth, this is not an anti-breast cancer you know, issue. This is not – people who get so personal about this, you know, first of all, this is not an I'm right and you're wrong. And I'm not going to say everyone agrees with me, and that's not my point to please everybody. But this is not anti-breast cancer. This does not mean that we're taking away from your pain and your suffering, because everyone that has cancer has pain and suffering. This is about corporations abusing you as a cancer survivor for their own profit, and you should be just as pissed as we are. You know, I think that one thing that's just as great as the reporting that's gone on are the comments that you can read. I mean, almost every single one of these articles has engendered really long comment sections with like 400 or 500 responses. And they're really biting, and people get very emotional about this issue on both sides of the fence. And I think it's really interesting to read those comments. Yeah, and that's really what it is. I, I, I think I, I actually I tagged and tweeted a what I call a comment shitstorm. And I think we can effectively call those. That's, that's you what had they like are. 50 comments within like an hour of posting that. Yeah, I mean, there was one thing that I posted where my status was nothing but the word pink 20 times, and that turned into a shitstorm. But then someone else wrote an article somewhere in the comments for that, unrelated to me or I2Y. There were like 40 comments of women really angry, angry, hostile, overly emotional, not thinking with their minds. Uh, but you're absolutely right, Carol. Yeah, I remember this one, you know, comment that somebody said, you know, how dare you slam this, you know, pink ribbon thing. My wife has breast cancer, and you have no idea what it's like to go through this. And somebody else said, I Completely have unrelated. Breast- <laughs> they said, well, I have breast cancer, and I still don't want to run out and buy a pink vacuum cleaner because of it. You know, and, and there, like, emotions were running wild, but... In some of these comments, they really just got down to the point of is education happening and is money getting to the places where it needs to or is this just to benefit companies that are trying to profit? And, you know, those are the questions that we need to be asking and the conversations we need to have. Right. It drives me crazy. It drives me crazy. You know, people think like, oh, well, I bought the pink product because I'm helping. Yeah, you just helped increase the sales of that organization that is giving $10,000 of their $40 million in sales to some type of breast cancer awareness campaign. But again, going back to my overall theme, the fact that it has hit this peak this year, that it didn't even come close to last year, I can't wait to see the shitstorm for 2010 because either they're going to start reeling back and it's going to become a negative PR thing for them to do this, or people are going to just come clean and be more transparent and we're going to see some level of heightened uh, consumer advocacy on this, or maybe, maybe heightened donations, as you know, like those those yeah, just those write your friggin' check to the organization, people. You don't need a pink blender, Jesus. Sorry, end of soapbox. I don't think Jesus has a pink blender. Jesus does not have a pink blender. Jews don't cook. <laughs> this dude does. <laughs> I can't believe I just said that. <laughs> I can because I just made myself laugh. Look at that. You throw yeah, a lot you, of stuff my way that you I don't, don't understand. Typically, do carpentry either. That's true. That's that's true. We hire people to do our carpentry for us, and yeah. then complain about it, and then bitch <laughs> about it. Exactly. Yeah, I think we're going to be getting calls from the ADL pretty soon. If yeah, anti defamation league. The yeah. Simon Wiesenthal people clearly going to unfriend me on Facebook now. Yeah. All right. Well, let's uh, let's get to the news here and start to kick off our show. What do you say? Okay. All right. Here we go. Hello, I'm Kent Brockman, and this is Eye on Cancer. Just the facts, ma'am. 
Alrighty, during this part of the Stupid Cancer Show, we announce worthy news stories to our adoring listeners to inform them about the latest and greatest in young adult programs. That is free young adult programs, services, events, projects, and other stuff. If you have an upcoming program, event, or press release that you would like to hear broadcast during this segment of the show, please fax it to us at 877-794-6902 or email Jack at jack at i2y.com. Take it away, Jack. Thank you, Matthew. And here's your stupid cancer news. First up, I want to send a big thank you to Andrew McMahon and the D.C. i2y chapter for putting together a phenomenal event in Washington, D.C. last night. Carolyn Crow, Amy Ryback, Bree Harrison, Joe Harrison, Erica Reyes, Tom Snyder, and Jason Mott. We toilet papered that concert, Matthew, and we raised a lot of awareness. Everybody left there with the Super Cancer pin on and a sticker, and we even had people coming to the website today thanking us for being there. You said over 800 people? 830 people. It was a sold-out concert. Andrew McMahon himself is a young adult cancer survivor, and he was very glad that we were there, and we were very glad to have the opportunity to be there. So thank you to the Washington, D.C., slash Florida, slash Connecticut people for putting together a great event. In your news, we have the Cook's Children's Adult Group Annual Retreat being held January 29th through the 31st, 2010. For more information on this retreat, contact Lisa Bashmore at area code 682-885-2125. Head on over to events.i2y.com for the official social calendar of the I'm Too Young for This Cancer Foundation. Upcoming events are as follows. We have a... Happy Hour, Super Cancer Happy Hour being held in North Carolina tomorrow, as well as San Francisco. So it's going to be hard to get to both, but choose one, San Francisco or North Carolina tomorrow. And on Thursday, Matthew and I will be in Nashville for the I'm Still Beautiful fashion show slash I2Y fundraiser. And on October 31st, Halloween, that's a Saturday night in New York City. We are having our inaugural, inaugural Halloween Scare Stupid Cancer Scaretacular. So come on out to that. Head on over to events.i2y.com. Wake up. Your life is waiting. A program for young adult cancer survivors is being offered by our friends at Cancer Care. Thursday, November 19th in New York City. To register for this event, contact our friend Julie Larson at jlarson at cancercare.org. That's jlarson at cancercare.org. Saturday, November 7th in Chicago. Survivors, leave your parents at home. Come celebrate with other adolescent and young adult cancer, childhood cancer survivors. This celebration will include dinner, prizes, and an open forum featuring cancer survivors Johnny Emmerman, Matthew Zachary, and George Lamparis. Again, that's Chicago, Saturday, uh, November 7th. Survivor Step Into Motion is a young adult cancer survivor exercise program. If you would like to participate in an exercise program that I currently have zero interest in because I'm not into exercising, contact Santina Horowitz, 401-793-8124. There are some young adult cancer support groups being offered in California, Santa Rosa, California, by the Leukemia Lymphoma Society and the Alta Bates Summit Medical Center. The third Tuesday of each month from 6 to 7.30 at the Reflection House in Santa Rosa, California, Leukemia Lymphoma Society is offering a young adult cancer support group for people ages 18 to 35. And the first and third Fridays of each month at the, Al- at the Alta Bates Medical Center. Are you having a problem? Yeah, I can't read my own writing. 
For more information on these events, contact 510-204-3909. As Matthew mentioned at the top of the show, we have Everything Changes, the Insider's Guide to Cancer in Your 20s and 30s. That is the newly released book written by our very own Stupid Cancer co-host, Carol Rosenthal. For more information on Everything Changes, head on over to everythingchangesbook.com. Next up, 70k.org. That's the word 70, the letter k.org. There are approximately 70,000 people aged 15 to 39 diagnosed with cancer every year. Head on over to 70k.org and sign this petition to be established as a bill of rights for the young adult cancer community. And finally, we have Live On, Sperm Banking by Mail. If you are a young adult male in need of fertility, sperm banking, before you begin your treatment, head on over to www.liveonkit.com. Live Sperm Banking by Mail is made possible by our great friends at Fertile Hope. And if you have any issues with fertility, head on over to FertileHope.org. And that, my friends, is your Stupid Cancer News. All righty. Back to you, MZ. Thank you, my friend. Thank you, thank you, thank you. All righty. Let's see here. Uh, what do we got here? What time is it? 921. My first guest was born and raised in Mexico, but has lived in the United States since 1993. He was an undergrad at MIT and did grad school work in synthetic organic chemistry at the Scripps Research Institute. He is finishing up his postdoctoral work in cancer chemical biology at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and will open his own lab at the National Cancer Institute next year. He is a three-year testicular cancer survivor. Please welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, my friend and yours, Ben Bernal. Hey, guys. Hola. Hey, hola. Thanks Como for having me here. amigo. I, before muy we bien, get muy to, bien. Yes. Muchas gracias. <laughs> I, I, I only taco know... Taco Loco. The, what? <laughs> Yo quiero taco... No, I'm going to do that. Pollo... No, no, Pollo taco, no, before anything gets said, before anything gets said, I really have to point out that it is, it is uh, the American Chemical Society. It is National Chemistry Week. Did you know that? That's right. That's right. I do my homework here on the Super Cancer Show. I'm yeah, so no, you're, well, you're very you. well informed. Yes, it is National Chemistry Week on from the American Can- uh, Chemical Society, or whatever it is. Yeah, so the, the the other ACS, ACS that we like. The other ACS. ACS we actually like. <laughs> There's two of them. Yes, there are two. But uh, so welcome to the show. Thank you for being on. I, I I'm in awe of everything that you do. We like scientists and we like researchers. And uh, it's it's an irony when you join the club that you're trying to help. So there yeah. you go. Fed, your story yeah, no, it's is just, really bizarre. It is so bizarre and really amazing. You know that prior to being diagnosed with testicular cancer, you were working in a lab as a chemist. And I wonder if you can tell me a little bit about the specific project you were working on prior to your diagnosis and what you were trying to accomplish with that. Sure, yeah. Uh, so as Matthew said, uh, my, uh, my training is in synthetic organic chemistry, and in that line of work, uh, what we do is just we, we try to make uh, complex natural products from scratch, from readily available materials. But after I finished graduate school, uh, I figured it would be more fun uh, to make synthetic molecules so I could probe cellular process. You know, it would be more fun. It would be more, more, more like applied chemistry, if you will. And in that sense, I would be poking at cells with molecules and see how they respond. So uh, when, I w- uh, when I started my postdoc at Harvard, I literally stumbled into the field of cancer chemical biology, where I, where I started using synthetic compounds to probe and modulate the pathways that allow cancer cells to thrive. 
and I was specifically probing a pathway that involves a protein called P53. And uh, this protein is, is uh, usually is called the guardian of the genome. It's, it's a sentinel that all cells have. And what this protein does is to detect when, uh, whenever there's an insult to the cell, like starvation or radiation or anything that could be potentially harmful. So when the cell gets, uh, uh, becomes damaged, then uh, P53 orchestrates a whole series of events that have as a name to fix the damage. But in most cases, if the damage is too overwhelming, then P53 tells the cell to pretty much shut down or self-destruct as a means to avoid, uh, avoid the damage from propagating to daughter cells. So, uh, so, in, uh, so what's interesting here is that about half of all cancers have some defect in this signaling system. So the goal, uh, so the goal of, uh, of the research was, uh, was to find ways to restore the, uh, the system in cancer cells so they realize that they're not supposed to be there, and so they self-destruct. So, you know, in the midst of working on this, what sounds like incredibly important research, three years ago you were diagnosed with cancer. I mean, you were working in the lab one day, you noticed a pain, mm-hmm. you got yourself to the hospital, and then you were diagnosed with testicular cancer. And I'm really curious what the first thought was that ran through your mind when you were diagnosed with cancer, were you thinking like, oh, my God, P53, or my wife and kids? Or what, what was the first thing that ran through your mind when you found out that you had cancer? Honestly, my first reaction was chock full of expletives. <laughs> uh, uh, because, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty ironic how, how all this, uh, all this uh, end, uh, ended up happening. I mean, uh, after I was carted away from the ultrasound room in the ER, uh, the first thing was that I noticed that everybody was staring at me like the nurses, the orderlies, the rest, even the chief of the ER was giving me weird looks. And uh, that was when it really hit me that something was seriously wrong. Uh, now, uh, you know, the ER where I was diagnosed is right next door to the building where I work, which you know, goes to show that, uh, that life is not without a sense of irony. I mean, there I was, a young cancer biologist, wearing my ID badge from the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, being diagnosed with cancer. I mean, it can't get any more eerie than that. Uh, and it was a very surreal experience, to say the least. But, you know, one of the things that, that really, really stuck in my head was that at work, I am used to seeing the patients walking around uh, you know, day in and day out, and uh, now I was actually going to be one of them. So, uh, uh, so in a sense, you know, it was, it was a very, very bizarre experience just to coming to terms with all that. Do you feel like any of your coworkers treated you differently now that, you know, what they are – often probably thinking of as something under the microscope was a reality in your life as their coworker? Yeah, well, you know, I, actually, you know, my coworkers were extremely so, uh, supportive of this, you know, uh, in particular my boss. Uh, you know, my boss, uh, uh, in addition to, to running the lab, he is also a clinician. He, uh, he, sees, the, uh, he sees patients at the Jimmy Fund Clinic, and, uh, and everyone was extremely supportive and, uh, and uh, very understanding, you know, to, uh, that, you know, to see that someone, uh, someone in their own lab studying, uh, 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 studying cancer was now a patient. Uh, so, yeah, no, in, in a sense, you know, it actually, it actually helped, uh, helped, uh, helped out a lot. You know, they were, all, uh, they were all extremely supportive through and through. So, you know, you're not just a young adult cancer patient, but obviously you are a young researcher. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about some of the barriers that young cancer researchers face when they're trying to get grants and funding. Yeah, I mean, that's really, you know, one of the, one of the banes of, try, of, of trying to 
uh, uh, to get the research off the ground because, of course, you know you need the, uh, the research dollars to, uh, to, uh, to get the work going. Uh, now, in my, in my experience, the biggest barrier, I think, is the competition for the available research dollars. And uh, in a sense, you know, get, uh, getting, uh, getting funding is a bit of a vicious circle because if you want to come up with a competitive proposal, a competitive application, uh, you not only need to have novel and feasible ideas, but you also need to have solid preliminary data to back up your proposal. Now, what do you need to get that preliminary data? Well, you need money to make the experiments to get that data. So in a sense, you know, you're just in a circle there. And also this, you know, this puts young investigators at a disadvantage because uh, competing, you're competing for these research dollars against established, well-off senior scientists. So, uh, uh, so in a sense, it's really difficult to, uh, to be able to, t uh, to get uh, part of that pool. Uh, now, fortunately, uh, agencies like the NIH or the NSF have acknowledged how difficult it is for, star for starting scientists uh, uh, to secure federal funding. So they are making a concerted effort uh, to uh, relax the rules a little bit for what they call new investigators. So, uh, so they cut you a little bit of slack if this is your first application. Uh, so and, you know, the other important issue is, yeah. is, is that there's a, there's a trade-off in proposing a high-risk, high-reward project, which you know, it's really hard to fund those because sometimes they're a bit off the wall, as opposed to, uh, as opposed to uh, safer research avenues that might be deemed more feasible by study sections. You know, you're speaking of the National Cancer Institute, and the last question I want to ask you is about your future. Congratulations. You were just offered an incredible position to set up a lab there, and I'm wondering what Thank kind you. of research... <laughs> Yeah, what, no, of, what are you going to be doing? What are you specifically going to be researching um, at the National Cancer Institute? Yeah, no, thanks for the hat tip. Yeah, I, I'm actually really excited at the prospect of setting up my, uh, my own lab at the NCI. Uh, now, one of the things that the NCI, along with many other research universities uh, 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 and, and, and certain funding agencies as well, they've acknowledged the need to bridge scientific disciplines when, uh, when tackling a major disease like cancer. So to that end, my goal is to bring to the NCI my experience in chemistry and continue developing agents that could target specific protein-protein uh, interactions in cancer cells and you know, hopefully someday develop, uh, uh, develop these as a therapeutic. You know, one of the, uh, as, uh, uh, as an example, uh, you know, the vast, uh, for instance, uh, take all chemotherapy that's available right now uh, to, uh, to treat uh, cancer nowadays. Chemo is pretty much napalm. You know, you're just bombarding the body with, uh, uh, with poison that will destroy rapidly di uh, dividing cells. And, you know, it's, that's, it's really good and effective at killing cancer cells, but there's a lot of collateral damage as well. So, uh, so the idea would be, uh, would be to develop smarter drugs, if you will. Uh, I, I, I want to be able to, uh, to find the sweet spot in specific uh, pathways that allow cancer cells to survive uh, by first understanding the biology and then by, and then by developing these agents further. You know, and this line uh, of work is actually, it's actually fascinating. And uh, yeah, you know, now is, that I wear uh, yeah. It is such amazing work that you're doing, and we're so excited that you kind of beat that barrier of being, a, a, well, that you've survived cancer and that you're a young researcher who is just really go, going far in your career. And I think that what you're talking about is a perfect segue into our next guest, Diane. And so I, I just want to thank you so much for being on the show. And Matthew, do you want to introduce Diane? And yes, Fed, thank you, we'd love to have you back again. Here. Yeah. Fed, thank you so much. Good luck with everything. You're a brilliant guy. I want to have you back. We could do a whole show just with you. This, your mind is blowing. It's it's crazy. You're you're a brilliant guy. I can smell your oh, intelligence. Well, thanks very much You're for having right. me here, guys. I really appreciate it. All righty, Fed Bernal, everybody. Vaya con Dios. Vaya con Dios. Adios. Hey, amigo. Thank you.
All righty. Nine thirty ish. Alrighty. Our second guest is one of my new favorite people on the planet. I'm right here. No, 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 not you. Diane Balma is a young adult survivor of breast cancer as well as the executive director of Stand Up to Cancer. Prior to which, she served as an executive at Komen for the cure. For those of you living under a rock, Stand Up to Cancer is a new charitable initiative created to fund groundbreaking translational research aimed at getting new treatments to patients in an accelerated time frame. A real honor to have her on the show. Please welcome Diane Balma. Diane. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you, thank you. And I meant what I said. You really are one of my new favorite people. Oh, uh, and you're one of mine. I, you know, I enjoyed our, our meeting a couple of months ago, and um, I really enjoyed listening to your your prior guest. I guess I should say hola, shouldn't I? Instead of hello. Muy bueno. Hola. Hola to both of you. Yes, and thank you for having me. I'm I'm so happy to be here. I think the work that you're doing is just tremendous. So thanks very much for uh, bringing awareness to uh, young adult cancer. Yeah, yeah we're we're just uh, pretty impressed with what you guys do as well. And I'd love to know, you know, how did Stand Up to Cancer get started? There are so many cancer organizations already out there. What did you guys feel was missing, and how did you come into fruition? Well, you know, it's interesting because I, I come at this sort of from a different perspective. I was with another organization, uh, as Matthew mentioned, uh, when, when Stand Up to Cancer was launched. And I remember at the time thinking, okay, one more organization, you know, one more initiative, one more organization. Are they going to end up being an organization or is this sort of a one-off deal? And, um, and I remember having reservations about another organization being established because there are so many out there, but what I've come to, to learn with, with the, the people involved with Stand Up to Cancer is that they are filling a, a niche uh, by bringing together media, celebrity, um, you know, their, their access to, to not only um, bring more awareness about the disease, and, and I know that there are other groups that do that as well, but really the focus on translational research and the way in which uh, we're doing it is unique. And, and so a couple of things. One is we know that you know, the National Cancer Institute, um, the funding there has, has been sort of flat for the last couple of years after the doubling of the budget, but also they have focused historically less on translational research than on basic research. And so we're about making sure that what we discover in the labs gets to the patient's bedside. That's what we're about. And we're about doing it in a way that is designed to accelerate translational research by working through uh, a model that we developed called the Dream Team Model. Uh, and also through innovative grants, and I'll, I'll talk about the innovative grants in a minute. But the dream you know, team Diane, model. I'm wondering if you. I'm, yeah. I'm so sorry to interrupt, but you no, saying the word translational research, and I, which excites yeah. me so much. And I think a lot of us are not exactly sure of what that phrase means. Can you break it down a little bit so that we can sort of get inside your head and see what is so innovative about this you and know, what that means? Yeah, you're so right. I mean, it, and it is hard to define, and, and so the. What we're talking about is really taking what's learned in in the laboratory, so you know the, the the at the molecular level, and taking that and translating that into something that can uh, result in in new therapies and treatments for for patients. So it's sort of it's the it's the in between step that bridges the basic research that is is done in the labs with lab rats and so forth. Uh, and also the clinical stage, you know, through clinical trials. It's sort of that intermediate step that is absolutely essential 
to the development of, of new and better therapies for, for patients. I think a lot of listeners are probably scratching their heads thinking, wait, I thought that's what cancer research was, <laughs> is that you, you yeah, look right. at something under a microscope and then in rats and then it becomes a drug that we right. learn about through our doctors. Right. What, what's the barrier that's happening now that is, I guess, what, what's the antithesis of translational research and what, what's so, the... So I think there are, uh, that's a great question. I think there are a couple of things. One is um, truly a lack of funding. And, and, and when I say that, it's, it's not just about, you know, the fact that we need more money for translational research. There's no question that we do. I mean, basic research is critically important, but we know a lot about basic research. And so we need to use what we know and, and translate that information into something that's going to work for patients. And so it is a lack of funding. It's, it's, a, it's about how the money is being spent and also, I think um, the model that Stand Up to Cancer has developed is truly unique, and, and we believe it's going to accelerate research by bringing together um, what we call dream teams. And, and these are comprised of the best and brightest minds across the country from uh, different institutions, all working collaboratively. And that was that was one of the things that we that we sought to accomplish. Um, we you know we were concerned about the lack of of collaboration and communication between and among scientists, and so um, this model really forces them to do that. And the other thing is that our grants are very high dollar grants, so we're looking at you know between you know ten and twenty million dollars, and so the grant funding that we're providing really has uh, the potential to to rapidly, um, you know, uh, rapidly translate what's learned in the lab into something that's going to benefit patients, and that's our number one goal. You know, you mentioned bringing together people from different fields, and I'm wondering if you can say what some of those fields are, because when I learned about this, I was kind of blown away at, you know, how many different scientific fields can contribute to cancer research that's not just biologists. Well, that's that's true, and I mean, I think it's it's not just biologists, but it's clinicians, it's translational researchers. I think ultimately we need mathematicians, and you know, for developing new models and so forth. So, but it's bringing the it's bringing researchers um, from around the country together to work on a dream team project, and and through that project, you've got the best and brightest minds collaborating and sharing information and sharing data. And so it's, um, it's quite exciting. I mean, it's created a lot of buzz. We know that others are looking at our model, and our, our philosophy is great. We hope others copy the model. We want people to use the model because we believe in it that much. And then also yeah. there's, there's so much that patients can benefit from when scientists are collaborating instead Ab- of just competing Ab- against each other. Ab- absolutely. And our current system is not designed, frankly, for collaboration. And that's not to take away from the – the the incredibly passionate researchers out there. I mean, I, but but the system is not designed to reward really collaboration. It it really rewards competition more. So so we're we're trying to to turn that model on its head. And and um, we also we recently in May we announced uh, more than seventy three million dollars in Dream Team grants to five Dream Teams that we that we believe will have uh, major implications for young adult cancers as well. And we know that we need to do more to, to put emphasis on young adult cancers. I'm a young survivor myself. Um, well, I'm 44 now, but I was I got cancer at 29. So I, I think it's once you're a young survivor, always a young survivor, right? Yeah. That is the Matthew yeah. Zachary loophole. Yeah, because, yeah, Matt, you're about to age out of your own organization. <laughs> no way. No, I got six years left. Yeah, that's right. So the other thing I wanted to mention, too, is though our innovative grants, and it was it, it is a perfect segue from what your prior guest said. He's absolutely right um, in terms of funding young uh, young scientists. And 
through our innovative grants process, we are seeking to fund high-risk, high-reward projects, um, you know, proposals that are submitted by young scientists because, it's, as your prior guest said, Fred said, that um, there is a lack of funding and risk-taking when it comes to these young people. So we are investing in the future and, um, and providing funding for young investigators who very likely, you know, wouldn't receive funding elsewhere or it would be difficult for them to do so. Well, I mean, again, this is Matt. I mean, just going back to yeah. this whole idea for, for the sake of our listeners, uh, I, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the general rule of thumb as, as far as the, the rules have been for, for many, many years now is that the cancer researchers have to go where the money is based on what the people decide needs to be spent on versus right. actually listening to what the researchers have to say in collaborative communities and then funding what they think is in the best interest of everything. Yes. And yes. I think the fact that you have done that role reversal and uh, in, in getting to know you, and this is your philosophy and listening to you and yes. Laura, it was just so, it was so transformative for me to be in that room and hear people that finally have a different philosophy about this. And, and I mean, I start out a cynic and I get converted. And, and <laughs> I'm not easily converted and you've converted yeah, me. No, and it, you know. no clearly you're, you're no pushover, Matt, and we weren't trying to do that either. We, we so believe in our model and we love that day and that visit with you. And I think we were kindred spirits in many, many ways. But we so believe in this model. And one of the other things that we want to do is bring our scientific advisory council, which is comprised of Oh, what, 35 or 40 of, of the top scientists in, in the world. Um, we, we want to put the question to them, tell us what else we should be funding. You know, what other things do you think we should be funding? Not only looking at the, you know, the, the proposals that we get, but, you know, are there other models that we need to be looking at? Are there other areas of science? So um, we, we won't ever, I don't think, veer away from our model, but, but we're constantly looking for ways to be additive to the model. Right, and I, I like the fact that you, you, you're calling yourself a movement. Yes, you're an organization, mm -hmm. but you were very tenuously organized by nine very powerful women right. who, you know, each came to the table with a different agenda, but the fact right. that you all, they all said we have to do it this way and this is what makes the most sense for the greater good, and, and it is more of a movement than it is right. an organization. And, and I, to why, you know, to the rooftops, proudly endorses and supports everything you guys are doing, especially my whole argument this all this time is that the young adult voice is not heard in the clinical right. realm. And now the door is open for that conversation to move forward toward real progress. Absolutely, Matt. And, you know, you, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, these women are, they blow me away. And I've been in, in the cancer community for about 15 years, and um, I've never seen anything like uh, this group. I mean, they truly are walking the walk. These are women that have diverse backgrounds, are all very powerful, and they put aside any differences or conflicts they had because they were so committed to to our mission and um, and the cause. And, you know, we've all lost people to cancer. I've certainly lost too many young friends who were told what I was told, which was you're too young to have cancer. You know, you can wait and watch it. I'm sure it's nothing. Well, I decided, you know, wait and watch it. Wait and watch it do what? What if it is cancer? <laughs> exactly. And I had it removed, and, and many of my young friends um, didn't, and they're no, no longer here. So, you know, the, the, I think when I hear about a young person being diagnosed with cancer, I, I ask myself, what could I have done differently to get the message out? What could I have done, you know, more to to um, to get the message out that the young people do get cancer and that we need more attention on it? I, I In my prior position, 
I um, helped develop the Young Women's Initiative, um, and I'm proud of that that work. Um, but it was it was lonely when I was diagnosed in 1995. I knew no young people with cancer whatsoever, and no you know young women with breast cancer. And you know I went through the whole you know dating thing and just feeling like a fish out of water when I would go to parties. And um, you know it was it was tough. I had no no guidance, and I so wish there had been someone like like you and your organization uh, guiding me uh, along. I think it's tremendous what you're doing. Well, we are so excited that you guys are are covering the behind the lab doors side of of things because I, I you know it's something that I as a cancer patient don't know enough about, and I've read a bit about the problems with funding, and I think it's great that you guys are are really going to the root of what needs to be done and kind of changing mm-hmm. the system. And I'm wondering how other people can get involved with Stand Up to Cancer. What can they do when they go to your website, or how do they become involved in your movement? You know, they can, uh, obviously they can they can give, um, they can spread the word, they can go to the website and, um, you know, just just uh, provide support and, and um um, you know, spread the word. Um, 100% of the public donations uh, go to research and uh, join an online community. Um, you know, there are ways to participate in the show online, and so we hope that um, we hope that we'll we'll generate some support this evening. And, and word of mouth, we appreciate the, just having the opportunity to to get the word out about the organization and all that they're doing. And it, and we really are, I think. Um, and I say this objectively. Again, I've only been there since May. But um, it, it is a movement. It's a it's a, a unique organization, um, and they really are filling a gap and filling a niche, both as a translational research and then using the the media and and celebrity to um, to to generate um, you know more interest in, in funding for research. So it's a great it's a great organization to be a part of. You know, when I go onto so many cancer websites, I see all these pictures and videos of people saying, you know, I have breast cancer. I'm a breast cancer survivor. I'm a cancer survivor. This is the kind yeah. of cancer I had. And I have to say, I thought it was so cool. Now, I'm a complete geek, and everyone knows that I'm a total nerd, but I totally geeked out on going to your website and watching videos of scientists talking about their work, and I thought, you know, I never see this, and I'm a cancer patient. I, I need to be connected to what what's what's the cure that's, you know, I've been living with cancer for nine years, and right. I want to know right. what is coming down the pike. So, God, everybody should go to the Stand Up to Cancer website and check out these cool scientists, what they have to say, and one of them is actually our next guest, Laura Shaver. So, Matthew, I'm wondering if you want to bring her on, and Diane, thank you so much for being a guest on the show. It was really great talking to you. Thank you so much, and SU2C.org, and look for our new Up To initiative. Uh, it's, uh, it's up to us, it's up to you all, it's up to survivors, it's up to every one of us, so let's, uh, let's get to it, and uh, keep up the good work, everyone, and thank you for having us on. Diane, you're a rock star. Good luck. I'll see you soon. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. Diane Baum, everybody, executive director of uh, Stand Up to Cancer. And young adult cancer survivor. And a young adult cancer survivor who is giving voice, giving that voice to the young adult movement. Really, really phenomenal stuff. Okay. Our last guest tonight has been involved with cancer research and drug development as a scientist, biotech entrepreneur, survivor, and philanthropist. Prior to Phenomics, she was president of Sujin, a biotech company focused on understanding molecular pathways of cancer. She developed the drug Sutent, deputy editor of Molecular Cancer Therapeutics and active member of the American Association of Cancer Research, the recipient of Stand Up the Cancer's philanthropy. Uh, after her treatment for ovarian cancer, she established the Clarity Foundation to provide access to molecular profiling. 
for other ovarian cancer patients in hopes of improving treatment options. Please welcome to the show Stand Up the Cancer Scientific Advisor and brilliant other person on the show to compliment everything else, Laura Schauver. Hey, everybody. Did you like that brilliant other person to compliment that was, everyone else? That made me laugh, yes. It did. I went to college for the, to learn this language. <laughs> I went to college, too, but I can't say that. <laughs> no, but you can say molecular blueprint. Right. <laughs> I can say so, that. I am so excited to have a scientist on the show, and I totally want to tap your brain for all of the geeky knowledge that you can teach us um, about what's happening behind the laboratory doors. And I know that a lot of what you talk about is tumor blueprints, and I'm wondering if you can tell us what a tumor blueprint is. Yeah, absolutely. I want to tell you about uh, what a tumor blueprint is and also just say that it's, it is an example of translational medicine that Diane talked about. And, of course, one of the very, very important things that Stand Up to Cancer is doing is bridging the gap between early detection and cures in the future. And for those of us that are diagnosed with cancer today or have a recurrence today or are blowing through our chemotherapy today, it's too late for early detection, and it will be too late for cures for the future. We need something now. And that's um, the wonderful, wonderful thing about what Stand Up to Cancer is doing is getting something to those of us that are diagnosed today. I think that's a very, very important point. So just an example, then, is a tumor blueprint, which is, Rather than, you know, everybody gets a pathology report on what their tumor looks like under a microscope, but we need to go beyond that. We need to understand what's happening inside the cancer cell, not just what it looks like under a microscope. And that requires these special diagnostic tests, which we call molecular profiling or I sometimes call blueprints. And so what do you learn when you look at one of these molecular profiles or blueprints, and, and how will that actually end up helping cancer patients? Well, the way that we treat cancer now is typically by where it occurs in the body, right? Um, and, in fact, that's the way drugs are approved by the FDA is we do clinical trials in a particular tumor type, in breast cancer, in ovarian, in leukemia, um, in prostate, whatever, um, rarely are we, are we doing clinical trials based on the alterations that drive the tumor cell. Your first guest, uh, Fred, talked about P53. That's one of them. What is the changes in P53? What are the changes in these other molecular markers that actually correlate with drugs that uh, the, the, with cancer drugs, and cancer drugs have targets that they act on, um, and we can understand, is that target expressed in your cancer cell? Um, do you express chemoresistance markers that might say, well, if you have to prioritize a treatment, you shouldn't have a, a particular chemotherapy because it doesn't have a good chance of working? versus a chemosensitivity marker, which would give you a better chance of success. And I think 
cancer treatment should be about cures and about finding the treatment that's right for you as an individual versus finding versus using a treatment that was tested in a population. So instead of saying, aha, you have thyroid cancer, we're treating thyroid cancer, they'd be saying, okay, we've now seen the molecular blueprint for Carol Rosenthal's cancer, and this is how we're going to treat her specific cancer. Can I chime in for just one quick second? I, in my meeting, and I found this, what you're talking about is exactly on part, blew my mind. When I was in this meeting with, with uh, Diane and Laura uh, Ziskin and the team, tell me if, this is, if my brain is working the right way to understand what you're saying. I, I was made to understand that the HER2 gene, which is part of Herceptin, which is for breast cancer, was actually discovered in a pediatric neuroblastoma by accident. And then that particular gene was able to be used and applicable to breast cancer in particular, but it's applicable to all cancers that happen to have the HER2 where it's not body-specific relevant. And even our chairman, Dr. Leonard Sender, has a young adult patient with colon cancer, male, who's on Herceptin because he's HER2 positive. Is that along the lines of it's not about That's where the tumor exactly is? That's exactly right, Matthew. Thank you. Yes, and so uh, HER2, which is the target for Herceptin, stands for homologous to the EGF receptor. It was identified um, in, um, as, as you said, in a very different type of tumor. And then somebody thought to, oh, Let's look at it in, let's do southern blots on, on breast cancer patients. And this is the work of Dennis Lehman at UCLA and Axel Ulrich at the Max Planck Institute. And what they found was that not only was it elevated, not only was the gene amplified in approximately 25%, 25 to 40% of breast cancer patients, but it predicted, they had the clinical data, and it predicted for a, a poor outcome. And hence, Genentech came along then and developed that drug. But what they did was very smart. They, they did the clinical trial only in HER2-positive patients. And something that not too many people understand is had they done their clinical trial in all comers, that meant every single breast cancer patient out there, irregardless of if, of if they had an amplified HER2 gene, the clinical trial would have failed. And this is why we need to be smarter as scientists to, uh, better, to, to subset out the populations, not treat everybody the same. That era is gone. So, you know, this... If other people might be listening and having their jaw drop open the way that I am, thinking, all right, I'm a cancer patient, and what this woman is saying makes a lot of sense. How do we apply this to our own treatments now? Where is the science at? What kinds of conversations can we have with our doctors about what you're talking about, molecular blueprinting? Right. So first of all, um, this is not meant to deny people their standard of care chemotherapy because oftentimes standard of care works. For example, I'm an ovarian cancer patient. We all get six cycles of carbotaxol. So did I, irrespective of the fact that um, I had my tumor blueprinted, albeit later because it didn't exist at the time that I had cancer three years ago. But um, so 
it, it, people should not run to their doctors and say, oh, I don't want to be on my chemotherapy. That's not what this is about. This is for patients that are struggling, that have recurrent disease, that have refractory disease. They should absolutely say to their doctor, hey, you know, can I have my tumor blueprinted? I want to understand the molecular profile of my tumor. And most doctors or many doctors won't know what that is or will that they will say, well, you have so many options, you really don't need to do that yet. Um, but for many of us, and I do work with um, ovarian cancer patients daily that have run out of options, um, this is something uh, that I really believe in as a scientist that we should have that conversation and you should get a sample of your tumor to a laboratory that does these special diagnostic tests. And if somebody is interested in that, is this something that insurance is covering yet or is this still pretty, you know, forward thinking, not within the realms of what insurance companies are covering these days? Uh, oftentimes insurance does cover it. I mean, one wow. of the things that we do uh, at the Clarity Foundation for ovarian cancer patients is we pay for the part that insurance doesn't cover or if insurance doesn't cover it at all, we will pay for it. That is the philanthropic part of the, of the Clarity Foundation for ovarian cancer patients. But what we're finding is that sometimes if you go to the right lab, um, the insurance will cover a portion of it. And, again, it's not for everybody, but right. for those patients that are struggling, uh, it's certainly something that should be done. You know, you wear so many hats. <laughs> you are a scientist and a researcher, but you also sit on the board of scientists who decide who the dream teams are. And I'm Yes, I do. If, can a you real tell me? honor to yeah, do that. What, what kinds of things go into making an ideal research team? Well, first of all, um, it's the it's what Diane talked about, innovation and collaboration. Certainly, um, we saw some great ideas there which did not seem to be collaborative, which got rejected because of that. Um, and we also took teams that put separate proposals in, and we said, you guys have to now work together. So you're a Yenta. You're a little matchmaker. Nice. <laughs> Very nice. The cancer Yenta. <laughs> I don't know that we were that, but, well, yeah, absolutely. That's what we were. We made people work together, and, um, you know, some of uh, this is not, as Diane mentioned, it's not typical for scientists. We tend to be geeky and work in the lab by ourselves, uh, and, uh, you know, trying to make that discovery and publish it before we uh, have a collaboration. So, it's against our nature, but um, Stand Up to Cancer is, is changing that as, as well as the, the focus on a very, very important aspect for patients that are diagnosed today where we need treatments today, um, not 20, 10 or 20 years from now. Well, let me ask a quick question. I probably This is a question that Diane might not have been able to answer but in the, in the grand scheme of things, in terms of the philosophy by which we evaluate longitudinal outcomes for disease management study, uh, biologically, epidemiologically, even socially, do you feel that this philosophy that, they're, uh, that they've, they've put out there to the world will eventually make existing uh, philosophies uh, irrelevant? 
I certainly hope so, and I do have a, a, a lot of hope for that. I mean, there certainly is a place for blue sky research. I mean, we never would have, who would have ever known that studying yeast, flies, and worms would impact uh, cancer treatment, but it certainly has. So we really, really need that basic research, and we really need what Fred is doing, which is working on new drugs for the future. Uh, we need that too, uh, but it has to all come together in a way that is right for the cancer patient and the individual rather than populations, and certainly the way we develop drugs has to change uh, focused on, on people's um, molecular underpinnings of their disease. You know, as if we haven't seen or heard enough about the different hats that you wear, people who have gone onto our website might notice that the picture we have of you as your guest picture is you on a surfboard. And I'm wondering <laughs> if you could talk a little bit about surfing and your own cancer. Oh, well, I gave you that picture because I heard that this was a, an irreverent show, and I like that about you a lot, and so I thought I would put up a little uh, a different picture, but I am a surfer. I love it. I think there's a lot of parallels with, with life and fighting cancer, and, you know, you're out there trying to catch a wave and, you know, trying to catch a big one, and, you know, we wipe out a lot, but, you know, we we paddle back out and try to catch the wave, and... I think everybody who surfs knows that there's, it's the you know one of the biggest adrenaline rushes and the highest of the highs to to ride a really nice wave and you know we um, you know we might wipe out a fair few times but we're going to catch some too and I think that's uh, really important as as cancer patients. Well, I have to say, you are such an impressive woman, and we're damn glad that you're here oh, being thanks, a cancer yenta and surfer <laughs> and survivor and researcher and dream team maker, and it's just such a pleasure having you on the show tonight. Hey, it's great to be here. You guys are doing great work, so keep it up. Thanks so much. Laura, thank you. Laura Schauber, surfer, cancer research yenta, stand-up to cancer uh, advisory board member. That's a lot. I thought I wore a lot of hats. That's a, certainly a lot of hats she's wearing there. But uh, really great. Thank you, Carol, for making that uh, making that happen and getting her on the show. Yeah, she's just an amazing woman, and this has been a great show. I love talking to these people who really show us what cancer research means, because especially this month, you know, with the month of pink, everything we see just says cancer research, cancer research. What does that mean? I mean, exactly. it's an enigma, and I'm so glad to be able to talk to these great people who are making it happen and can really paint a realistic picture of what life as a researcher is about these days. Well, uh, on a closing note, though, let me just ask you, in all fairness to the general population, without being too overgeneralizing, most people don't question authority by nature. So they may be made uncomfortable by the people that do, Yet it seems to be the only way that change has ever really happened is by questioning authority. And the fact that I, I did ask that pointed question at her specifically with that these people at Stand Up to Cancer questioned authority. They questioned some of the most uh, supposedly legitimate infrastructures in the cancerverse in this country, in public health, in big box private groups and nonprofits, and they said, you're doing it wrong, we're going to do it right, and now they seem to be steam barreling over them all because of that. 
So I think it just reinforces the, the need to question authority and to question the status quo So along the lines of what you just said. Everything's pink and we have to buy it because it's pink. No, don't, you don't have to buy it. Question it. Why? What does it really mean? Like, uh, is it just you and me that this seems obvious to? You're anti-breast cancer research. Yes, I am. I'm pro-breast cancer. Everyone should get breast cancer. That is exactly, I'm switching our mission. I, on the other hand, am not. I've been pink the entire month in the chat room. Yes, you have. Yes, you have. Uh, Carol, you're a brilliant interviewer. I, I've said that a thousand times, but you really are. Thanks. It's so much fun being being on here and uh, getting getting to the root of what people do. And, um, you know, along the lines of people questioning authority, I think that's one thing that young adults are particularly good at. And whether it means questioning where our money goes to or giving the nurse a sideways glance and saying, excuse me, you're, you're going to give me a pill for what? That, that's not my medication. That's the person next to me. I mean, I think that young adults are really proactive about questioning medical authority in a way that other patients aren't. And we just need to apply it to so many different areas of our care, whether it's research or you know, the kind of treatment that's being recommended for us, and yeah. Speaking of questioning medical care and authority, did you happen to catch Suzanne Summers on the Today Show this week? I don't own a TV. Okay. <laughs> no. Nope. Is that a no? No, on YouTube, that's then. A no. It's on YouTube. Yeah, I actually caught it online today. But and I'm gonna I'm gonna paraphrase, but you know, you can certainly look it up for the uh, for the accurate quote. But she basically said that chemotherapy killed Patrick Swayze, not his pancreatic cancer. And it was about, like, you know, people should should take, like, a more holistic and natural approach to, you know, cancer diagnosis and treatment. And I guess she's written a book or whatever. And yeah, she has some book out. I mean, yeah. my response is that people should take a smarter approach to alternative medicine. I mean, right. that, that's what I would say to her. I have nothing, there's nothing wrong with alternative medicine, but we have to be smart about everything we do, whether it is the chemotherapy treatments we take or the alternative medicine treatments we take. We just can't make a, such a huge generalization that, oh, yeah, treatments kill people, therefore we shouldn't do them and we should do some natural alternative. That's not being a smart, proactive, educated patient. Yeah, and I guess apparently all of her sources for this book are, like, really controversial people and... It, it seemed like some, like one of her uh, one of her sources like had their medical license taken away, and it was it sounded very sketchy. But she was it was just you know it was like a it was a kick because you know chemo worked for me, it worked for a lot of other people, fortunately, and you know f for her to say that the chemo killed him as opposed to the terminal cancer that he was diagnosed with, I was just like, are you kidding me? Well, it, what I'm so shocked about is how people who are that seemingly vacant upstairs can make it into people's living rooms in the morning and all across the nation. Yeah, but and she probably can't even go outside because her face will melt. So, <laughs> like, you know, but she's picking on the cancer community. So I guess we won't be getting, I guess we won't she be getting like the guy at the end of the, guest of the, on the show, huh? <laughs> right, exactly. All right, yeah. well, on that right. note, look forward to uh, next week is our uh, our show on um Actually, next week is, is the last week of Pink Nausea Month. No! I know, I know. But we're actually not doing a show on breast cancer in an effigy. <laughs> we're so sick of breast cancer that our last show in October is not about breast cancer. So we'll, we'll, I'll see you guys uh, back here next week. Who has, Just out of curiosity, do you know who gets next month? Like now that pink washing's over, like is there a cancer that gets November? Uh, September was ovarian, I think. 
I don't know. Didn't I send out that link on Facebook that that the ribbon for every month? And yeah, ribbon for every yeah, like week, every, week. every 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 everybody has their own color or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I don't I don't know what November is. It we'll doesn't see. matter. It's unpink. It's unpink. All right. Well, thank you guys. Have a wonderful week. And uh, now it's time for our closing sequence. Prepare to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internet. You ever seen a grown man naked? And so to all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray, I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, Magoo, you've done it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer. All right, folks, that's tonight's show. I hope you had as much fun as we did poking a stick at stupid cancer. I'd like to thank our guests, Ben Renal, Diane Balma, Executive Director of Stand Up to Cancer, Paul Schaumer. Live in our studio audience, Rebecca Cherry. A special shout-out to Adam Thomas, our good friend from Pittsburgh and Washington, D.C. We love you, Adam. Get well, get well soon. Next week's show is not breast cancer in any way, shape, or form. It is called Parenting with Stupid Cancer with guests Aaron Spicer, Jamie Reno, Jen Singer, Julie Larson, and Roseanne Curry, a.k.a. Baldy Locks. If you've missed any of our previous broadcasts, check out the archives at stupidcancershow.com or subscribe to our podcast at itunes.i2y.com. If you don't already have Carol's book, Everything Changes, The Insider's Guide to Cancer in Your 20s and 30s, it is available wherever books are sold. Remember, if it's not stupid, it's not cancer. We'll see you all back here next week live from the chemo deck. Jack Buffard, Carol Rosenthal, Captain Stooping and I wish you all a great evening. Go to bed, Adelina. Bogger out. Hello?